Welcome to the Moz Monthly Podcast. Thorough discussion and in-depth information about the news, stories, and trends related to emergency medical services in Michigan. The Moz Monthly Podcast is brought to you by the Michigan Association of Ambulance Services. Here's your host, Moz Executive Director, Angela Madden. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Season 4, Episode 2 of the Moz Monthly Podcast. My name is Angela Madden. I'm the Executive Director of the Michigan Association of Ambulance Services and your host for this very special episode. Today, we're sitting down and talking to two very strategic thinkers around our country, Matt Zavadsky, the Chief Strategic Integration Officer from MedStar Mobile Healthcare out of Fort Worth, Texas, and Colby Miller from MedStar Ambulance right here in Clinton Township, Michigan. Both of these gentlemen have been traveling the country discussing the importance of changing the mindset of EMS in the use of lights and sirens and hot responses. Matt recently penned an article in EMS One talking specifically about why reducing the use of lights and sirens in emergency medical services responses might be the best thing for the industry. Matt, why don't you give us a brief overview of your work? You know, Angela, Colby and I combined have been in EMS for 1,200 years, but the the concept of time criticality in EMS is really starting to be challenged in much of the scientific literature. And when you think about the culture of, of EMS, and in the beginning when I first started as a volunteer firefighter back in the day, when we used to have to use horses, right, Colby, to bring the pumper to the fire. Um, everything was responded to hot. There are some agencies that still respond to everything hot. The The concept of changing that culture really came to a head when Dr. Kupis, myself, a number of other industry leaders, not only from EMS, but also fire and the physician groups came together last year and co-wrote, co-authored between 14 different EMS associations, a position statement that says, you know, this is really kind of silly. And we don't want to put our employees at risk. We don't want to put the public at risk. Is the risk benefit worth it for a large percentage of the quote unquote 911 or the emergency calls that we respond to? And with the growing body of evidence from peer-reviewed published studies, combined with the reality, and, and for the listeners, if you've been in EMS for longer than a week, you know that the majority of the quote-unquote 911 calls that we respond to are not time-life-sensitive emergencies. Some are, and we need to be able to identify those and and for the calls that are time-critical, get there as quickly as we can, but do that in a way that normalizes the use of lights and siren into only those cases where it's really, really necessary and may make a difference in the patient's outcome. Um, the publication of that position statement really began a, a large national dialogue about that concept. And later in the podcast, we'll talk about, you know, what we found when we surveyed, you know, the MedStar South employees here at MedStar in Fort Worth and um, some of the realities. But that's really what drove a lot of the discussion about we really need to change this culture. Um, and surprisingly, it's not gotten a lot of pushback, Angela. That's interesting to hear, Matt, because I would think that the general public would expect you to respond to their emergency lights and sirens. You know, we hear that a lot. And where we hear the public expectation 
pushback is from perhaps others in public safety, sometimes some elected officials. But when you look at some empirical data, and I'm just going to quote two, um, all the way back in 1980-something, Marie Wilson, who was the EMS director in Connecticut when I was a practicing EMT and paramedic in Connecticut, um, there was a concern in Connecticut about why so many people were driving themselves to the hospital um, and not calling 911. And one of the things that she found in her statewide survey is that many patients weren't calling 911 because of the production that it created um, in the neighborhood. So if you think about it, and, and if you work in a 911 center, you work in a, in a system where you respond to 911 calls, you hear patients all the time or people all the time when they call 911, say, could you please turn off the lights and siren when you come into the neighborhood? So we know that the public, quote unquote, may want a prompt response, but they don't want a production. They don't want the uh-oh squad coming out from the neighbor's house instead coming out into the front yard, whatnot. And then second, we did a study here because we're going through a reprioritization process in the, the MedStar system here in Fort Worth. And we've been using EMS survey teams since 2013 to evaluate patient experience. And one of the questions asked on the EMS survey team survey is the extent to which the ambulance arrived in a timely manner. And it's a Likert scale from one to five. So our data analyst went into all of the raw data from EMS survey team and pulled out response numbers that we responded to without first responders and without lights and siren. So a cold response, no first responders, happens pretty regularly in our system where you get a low acuity 911 call and ambulance only, no lights and siren. And she did a, a, an analysis, a, correl a correlation analysis between the patient's response to the ambulance arrived in a timely manner compared to response time and put the response times into two minute buckets all the way up to 75 minutes, 76 minutes technically. And we were still getting fives, most satisfied, even with 45, 60 minute response times. And, and that's because the patient knows in many cases they called with a low acuity request. The fact that somebody came today was fine with them. And I think what we need to realize is that we set quote unquote, the public expectation here by competing for contracts, competing for service based on response times. And we have done a disservice to the public. We've done a disservice to ourselves by setting the quote unquote system performance measures on a, a measure that really has little correlation to the patient's outcome. And we just finished a, a ice storm here and we stopped using lights and siren for every response for really about four days. And what we did was we, the call, and we have a, a, a we're a secondary piece up. So we talked to the 911 callers and when the callers called with a low acuity and alpha level, or even in some cases, a Bravo level EMD determinant, we would tell them, okay, ambulance is on the way. We're coming without license siren. We'll be there as soon as we can, but you know, we may be there in up to 45 minutes or an hour. And if you set the expectation for the public that, yep, we're coming. It's going to take 30 minutes, 20 minutes. If anything changes, call us back. Holy crap. The response was fine. So like, yep, I get it. Okay, thanks for coming. And we'll see you when they get here. Can we put on a pot of coffee? <laughs> it's just, you know, because people know they're calling in most cases, 911 with a low acuity complaint. But we just need to, to help manage the expectation and change the expectation. And Kelly's going to maybe talk about this, but we'll come back to it at, at some point in the podcast, especially in today's economic reality. And many communities are beginning to really ask the question, 
is that hot response with everybody in you know a very short period of time really worth the money that it's going to take to do that? I'm actually going to tag Colby in right now. Colby, without the use of lights and sirens, have we seen a difference in patient outcomes? There's no measurable difference in the national data that's out there. Dr. Blackwell and a few others have done some evaluations. And there's there's some time correlation in a very small number of calls that leads to patient outcomes. But it's, it's less than 3% of the responses that we undertake that might be affected by response times. So less than 3% of what we do might be affected by response times. And I think that that 3% number is a very important number because if you look at the things in our industry over time, when, when Matt used to ride horses, everybody carried a backboard and mass trousers. In fact, we couldn't graduate EMT school without being able to work these things blindfolded with one arm tied behind our back. And along the way, the research proved that backboards and mass trousers only had a little bit of an impact and it was in less than 3% of the patients. We got rid of them in two seconds because we didn't like them and they were kind of difficult to use, both of them. But when we look at emergency response times with the very same amount of clinical impact, we're very reticent to walk away from the standard. And I think kind of piling on to something that Matt said, because we've been accustomed and we've, we're, we're guilty. We trained the public to know that that's the measure of success. We've trained the public through our PR stuff, through the TV shows that are out there, and even through our just general dialogue, that the measure of a response or the measure of an EMS system is in its response time. And the public understands it's an easy number to tell people. Nobody understands, nobody misunderstands what three minutes or five minutes means. But but the implication there is that anything longer than X means that the agency's not doing a good job or that there's going to be a bunch of people dying because of response times. And any time that is called into question, without fail, nobody, nobody can stand up and say, no, here's why we do it. The, the you know, the Matt mentions the economics. If I had a million dollars to improve the cardiac arrest survival rate in my community, I wouldn't buy more ambulances the AEDs are $700 a piece right now. I'd buy a million dollars worth of AEDs and we would measurably change cardiac arrest outcome. The, the things in 1979 that we told ourselves when EMS systems were kind of born in the country, the things that we said have to be there within a certain amount of time, an airway and a defibrillator, uh, it, airways are, are carried and used by very well-trained first responders in our service areas now. And AEDs are available at Costco and they train Girl Scouts how to work them in fourth grade. So th- this idea that four or five vehicles have to go 80 miles an hour to get to somebody or it's not an effective response is very outdated, not supported by research. And and I think our, we're, we're tricking ourselves in our storytelling and our, our metrics that we present. We're creating danger, so we've got a good story to tell. And it's, it's just the wrong, I, I think it's, it doesn't bode well for EMS as a clinical practice to hold on to such outdated standards 
just because everybody understands them and they're easy to sell, if you will, to the public. You know, Angela, I want to add on, Colby mentioned his statistics. In our system, we have a collaborative group. We're, we're reprioritizing everything that we do right now. We respond to about 72%, 74% of our 911 calls hot. We want to try and get to that magic 30% number that the National EMS Quality Alliance is working on, and, and we're part of that. But our office of the medical director, working collaboratively with our clinical staff, with other first response organizations, et cetera, analyzed... 457,000 responses, patient contacts in our system over three years. And an objective review of that data showed that 2.05% of those calls had a greater than 50% chance of having potentially life-saving intervention administered on scene. So think about that. 2% 2% of half of half a million calls had a greater than 50-50 chance of having a potentially life-saving intervention, intubation, defibrillation, you know, critical cardiac meds, et cetera, et cetera. So we all, and, and Colby's taking the lead on this in Michigan, but we all nationally need to do really good clinical evaluations of our own data, our own patient contacts, because every community is a little bit different, to really pick those calls that have the greatest likelihood of of needing that hot response, where now it might, in our case, there's a 50% or greater chance that harming someone, either one of our own employees or the public, to get to a call might be worth it. Angela, if I might, there's and Matt Matt makes a real good point that that I didn't hear come through as strongly as those huge numbers pointing in the opposite direction of what we're doing. So if we can get ourselves past the idea that every call needs a time-sensitive response, lights and siren or otherwise, we will have more appropriate resources in the system and distributed throughout the system for the patients who do need the emergency response, do need the time-sensitive response. If if we cheer our responses and we take time out of the immediate lens of, of criticality, now we've got BLS trucks going on appropriate responses for BLS trucks. Now we've got ALS trucks that aren't screaming across town. And the end result of that, and it doesn't even take a calculator to figure this one out, the end result of that is that now the ALS truck is that much more available for the 1% of the patients where they can make an impact. But in order to get there with the same or less resources, we have to use the other resources better. And the only way to come to that system design is to stop telling ourselves that that every sprained ankle requires an emergency response of eight minutes or less by three vehicles. It sounds facetious, but but that goes on every day. We've, we've got certain parts of our service area where there's ALS first responders and the ALS ambulances required to run hot to get there when there's three paramedics on the scene. Uh, there's no other component of the healthcare world that operates that way, n- n- not one. Quick question for either of you. You've both utilize data from your individual and unique systems. 
if I'm an agency leader listening to this podcast, how would I go about doing those same analyses? Colby, you want to go first? So I think there's there's two components here. There's the there's the time sensitivity to red lights and siren versus not. And that's a that's data that's gleaned from the ambulance dispatch pad. There is a reliance on on vehicle mileage to really ferret out the right information from that analysis. But then the other research that can be done is real outcome data. And it's not always, you know, the hospitals for a long time were survival to discharge as a as a data point, but there's a lot that can go on there. So that's one piece. But the, you know, the impact of the arrival of the patient in the ER and the ER to admission and admission to discharge and length of stay, there's a lot of data there that can be correlated to first response to EMS. We're working on a project here at MedStar right now where we look at the following questions. Was there first responders on the scene? Was it an ALS response? Was it a BLS response? What was the time of the response as well as the mileage relative to the mileage? And then the the inter data points of the care, how long between arrival until we engaged with the patient? How long between engagement with the patient to the first uh, diagnostic intervention, the first treatment intervention, the first change in symptoms, the second intervention. Those are all real data points. And that real data can be gleaned from EMS patient care reports. Uh, we use ESO and we have a very robust data set that we've built out in ESO, but that's the data that matters. And I think it's hard for EMS agencies, you know, we respond to about 90,000 emergency requests a year. And even we struggle with believing that we have enough data to make these strong points. So for a smaller shop, it'll be even harder to get to clinical relevance, but that's the data that should be looked at. And I think everybody will be surprised when they find out that the three minute response to a cardiac arrest or the 11 minute response especially in the presence of first responders, no measurable outcome. And somebody will say, well, what about the age of the patient as a variable? And what about the, the, how many, whether they were on the third floor or not? There's all kinds of variables. But when you, build, when you build the density in the data, that means a lot of patients in your study, those things normalize and you'll see that there's just not a change. So there's some pretty standard data models that are set up. We're happy to share ours. Um, it's interesting when you hear people, especially some of the response times advocates, and you show them, you know, clinical measures between arrival, scene, transport, and hospital. Um, it, it's it's alarming and very uh, educational when you hear people push back and question why any of this stuff matters because we got there in four minutes. So the data is out there. It takes a little bit of time. It takes some personnel effort. The other thing is that it can be aggregated in the state EMS data repositories. Uh, CARES is a very helpful repository here. Some of the local medical control authorities have good data, but it's out there. It takes a little bit of time, but I think that time spent on that, time spent on evaluating how we use our resources in the most safest manner possible is uh, time well spent when it's when it's compared to dealing with the death of an EMS provider, a patient, or a member of the public, because we think we got to run hot to everything. 
No, Angela, Colby's spot on as always. And we understand that in our systems and his systems, we use extensively emergency medical dispatch and you can get response determinants pretty reliably and that kind of stuff. We hear occasionally when we work on this project with other agencies that, you know, while my dispatch center doesn't use EMD, so we don't have response determinants that we can categorize based on level of care, ALS, BLS, hot, cold, you know, times, et cetera, et cetera. I'm going to be very frank and very transparent with some of your listeners and they might get really pissed off. If your dispatch center is not doing emergency medical dispatch, shame on you. Um, it, this, it's been around forever and it is clinically proven to make a difference in patients' outcomes for pre-arrival instructions and post-dispatch instructions and being able to prioritize calls. And if you're not doing EMD and you dispatch a ALS unit to a twisted ankle and they're the closest unit by two blocks away from a cardiac arrest and you don't reprioritize them and send them to the cardiac arrest and send an ambulance 15 minutes away for the twisted ankle, shame on you. And don't even worry about your response times. Let's talk about the basic fundamental service that you should be providing to your community um, and really push for that. And, and that's going to you know, aggravate some people, but it, it's a commonly accepted and, and really expected process. And and we've heard tapes from other communities that we've worked with where mothers with babies who have stopped breathing are begging the 911 call taker to tell her what to do. And they're like, I'm sorry, we don't do that because, you know, we don't do EMD. Uh, well, let's go back to really fix your system. Second, <laughs> get off my soapbox. Using your data is very compelling because people will always say, you know, well, that's national data or that's statewide data. But if you can get a medical director and a, and a couple of folks in your community, your medical control authority in, in Michigan, other to, to, to really decipher to what Colby said, drill down some of your data, the, the changes that you'll see, the, the stark differences in care that's being delivered based on EMD determinant, we're actually doing this now nationally on a on a national workforce project that we're working on using, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of calls from different call centers across the country to look at which EMD determinants are increasing the fastest. Is it the low acuity calls that are increasing, the high acuity calls that are increasing? Um, therefore, that leads to staffing. And, you know, maybe we don't need as many paramedics as we have and because the low acuity calls are the ones that are increasing the most as a percentage of call volume, um, but cannot cannot understate the value of having that data because you're always going to have that one person in the public meeting or in the dialogues that you're having in your community to right-size some of these expectations who says, you know, one time at band camp, and we just need to get over that. Um, yeah, occasionally there are going to be issues and they're occasionally, we're, you know, going to have maybe a, something that got missed or the patient didn't give us clear information or the caller didn't have really good information and we did the best that we can. Um, but that risk-benefit analysis, clinically, it's done all the time through QA. We need to do the same thing operationally and realize that the use of lights and siren on the way to a call or even during transport is, in many respects, a clinical intervention. And you're at much risk liability-wise um, for, for operating in a way that isn't safe than you are administering a drug wrong. And, and we just need to start taking what we do seriously. I'm letting that one sink in for a little bit, Matt. There were some very strong words there, but I think very important ones uh, as it relates to the use of EMD and effective dispatch. I mean, you are both effectively working 
on this issue. If someone wanted to compare themselves to your system to know if they were high or low, what would be that number? System-wide at MedStar here in Michigan, I think it's probably about 65 to 70% are red lights and siren responses. That's much higher than we would like it to be. But to Matt's point earlier, we have some dispatch partners in some of our service area who either don't do emergency medical dispatch or, and you'll find this hard to believe and I can't make it up, they say that it's not their job to pass along the EMD categorization of the patient. So they give us a chief complaint. They won't turn over the caller and they won't give you the prioritization information that they've gleaned from what they claim to be is EMD. So you're kind of left out in the cold and on some of the chief complaints, we have an emergency response. And remember these in MedStar's service area, probably 80% of the service area that we provide 911 work in, there's first response. So if there's first responders with an airway and an AED, why is anybody from the second response using lights and siren? And the only reason is because we've got this time thing working against us where, oddly enough, the people who get on scene first and realize that the patient isn't critical, as most of them aren't, are upset when we show up three minutes after they do because they because we have a long response time. And the cynic in me that occasionally sneaks out says, I thought you were the first responders. So right now it's about 70% uh, percent on the 911 lights and siren over not lights and siren response. I'd like to see it down around 30. And ideally, I think we'd get it down under 20. But we've got to have good partners in our dispatch centers who agree with it. And then we've got to have municipal leaders who understand that this, this long-told fear of anything less than an X-minute response is going to make a difference in their communities. Because I think there's, there's, there's other, you know, not everybody in the emergency services world agrees with this uh, response time and red lights and siren discussion. And it's not because they want to talk about the clinical medicine. Some of this topic leads to staffing decisions. And if we can make you afraid of a response time, then you'll have to hire more people and we'll have more vehicles and more people and shorter response times. And the implication is that the opposite of that is dangerous. And the, and the uh, confirmation of that is positive and both are false. Long Angela, answer, 70%. <laughs> so, and, and we're now I'm, I'm again, I'm going to show some bias here um, by dispatch code by, by dispatched priority. We are at 74% hot. Our goal is 30. We're, our intermediate step, which will start March 1st, gets us down to 40% with this reprioritization group that we're doing with the first response agencies and everybody. And, and, you know, we're going to literally cut our hot responses at least by half. Um, but I'm going to share this with you. And this was fascinating when we were getting ready to launch this big project to, you know, start right sizing community expectations, if you will, that says, Hey, hot's dangerous. Two and a half times the the chance of an ambulance crash, injuring people, killing people, blah, blah, blah. 
Um, we did a survey of the community, very widely distributed, but we also did a survey of our own employees. While that survey was being distributed for our own field employees to respond to, um, I, I work a street shift about every three or four weeks. And I took note, and I don't, by the way, at Colby's recommendation, when I work a street shift on an ambulance, I don't drive, right? I, I, I typically work with a paramedic. I'm an EMT, um, but I love the patient care and I love the documentation. And, and I, I want to you know, experience what the field crews experience every day. I spent a 12 and a half hour shift with a very senior paramedic and he never attended a patient because every one of the 10 calls that we responded to in 12 hours were BLS. And interestingly, of the 10 calls that we responded to, seven were dispatched hot, which you would expect because 70%, but he did not turn on the lights and sirens responding to any of the calls. And after about third call that he did this, I said, Nate, we were dispatched hot to these last three calls, but you drove cold. Why? He said, well, because we're posted, we, we were, you know, six tenths of a mile away from the call. Um, and it's just not worth the risk. I'm not going to go license iron if I know we can get there in our response time. And we beat fire to half of those calls anyway, even without going license siren. And I asked him, I said, is this, is this common? Like just not going hot, even though you're dispatched hot? He says, shit, yeah, happens all the time. So we did a data analysis. I got back that night and pulled out data from our image trend software. And, and part of the field that I pulled was dispatched priority. And the next field was the response priority entered by the crew on their chart. And 40% of the time, when the crew was dispatched hot, they chose to respond cold. So when you ask the question, what percentage of your calls are responded to hot or cold, I would say that 74% are dispatched hot and probably 40% today are responded to hot because the crews are self-selecting. They looked at the notes, they saw where they were. They said, ah, you know, we're going to get there in four minutes, five minutes, whatever, anyway, because if we were posted, I'm just not going to do it. So I think for a lot of the chiefs and the and the CEOs and the managers that might be listening to this podcast, ask your people about what would they prefer. So we've characterized our quote unquote reprioritization effort to really allocation of first responders, which types of calls are we going to ask first responders to respond to? Because if we can tailor down the number of calls that we request first responders to respond to, they're more available to Colby's point earlier. They're more available for the high acuity calls where we need to be there in seven minutes with 90% reliability, first medical contact. And the first medical contact is always going to be a first, well, typically going to be a first responder. But really what we're doing is we're realigning our dispatch protocol to what's already happening in the field. So again, when you talk about culture, that was a very interesting aha moment for us when we really looked at what the crews are really doing in the field. Now we'd prefer they not do that, but they want some trust and dispatch that, okay, after the reprioritization goes into effect on 3-1, we'll know that if we're being dispatched hot, there's a greater than 50% chance this patient's going to need ALS care. I'll go hot because it might make a difference. Interesting philosophy. Angela, if I may, we do a report we do a quarterly report to each of our communities and it used to be 
just about response times because again, that was just the only measure we had. And then we started bringing in patient satisfaction surveys and, and that's really important data for local elected, local leaders, local department heads and health systems leaders to see what the patients think of the EMS experience. But in the last year or so, we've expanded this reporting to include the nature of the requests, you know, what the chief complaint of the caller is, the uh, lights and siren or not response, and then the disposition. And we look at canceled on scene, canceled prior to arrival, uh, patient refusal, any number of things. And it's interesting to have these conversations with some of our elected officials locally because they say, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're, we're having all these conversations about response times. But when I look at this data, not me, but the, the recipient of the data, when I look at this data and this many of the patients don't even go to the hospital and this many of the patients are not transported emergency, the elected leaders, the community leaders, the city managers are like, wow, I don't even need to know the clinical outcome. You can see it here that we're applying, uh, you know, we're applying this, this mass treatment to what is really a very, very small percentage of the patients who actually need it. And, and you can see it without even getting discharge data that, that you know, if there's 100 responses, 25% of them don't even result in a transport. And then when you start breaking it down from there, and then you get down to the actual emergency transports, you really can see that we're creating a lot of risk. And it sounds like Matt's personnel have figured it out. The MedStar personnel here has as well. We're creating a lot of risk for situations that just don't require it. And Angela, Colby raises an interesting point about the elected and appointed officials. I do some um, consulting for a, a consulting group through ICMA, the International City County Managers Association, and the workforce shortage, the costs, the all sorts of things that are happening has really gotten the attention of a lot of city and county leaders, um, and they're really beginning to have this conversation. So th there was a city in Michigan just on Thursday this past Thursday said, you know, we've got a provider and they're asking for a subsidy. We've never subsidized them before. They're telling me that their costs have gone up. Their, um, you know, revenue's gone down because the economy sucks and, you know, changes in payer mix, et cetera, et cetera. Um, can you look at all this data and tell me what you think? So over the weekend, I looked at the data. I said, you know, they have a seven, believe it or not, they have a seven minute response time requirement for the, the ALS ambulance provider. And to achieve that, based on their call volume, the, they're, they're requiring three ambulances 24-7. Um, and I, I wrote the city manager back in that community and said, okay, here's the deal. You've got way too many ambulances. Um, it's You've got a lot of the UHU is like 0.1 something. Um, the majority of calls that they're going on are, are lower acuity calls. Um, you can probably avoid a subsidy by relaxing the response times, and they have first responders on every call, by relaxing the ambulance response time standard to you know, 10, 11 minutes, whatever you wanna talk about in your community, and honestly, cut out one of the ambulances. And if you do that, based on this analysis and their payer mix and their APCs and all that kind of stuff, you can probably get away for another year, maybe two, 
of not having a subsidy, but that's it. Then you're going to have to subsidize them, but it's still better than other options. And and his response was, okay, we'll do that. A, a conversation like that two years ago, maybe three years ago, would have been heresy. But today, because a lot of city managers, county administrators, others are really looking at the economy and, and the costs of providing some of these services, and they're saying, you know, if we want a seven-minute response time with three ambulances on duty in our community for 8,000, 6,000 responses, um, it's going to cost us a million dollars. Uh, okay, what can we get for half a million? <laughs> it's just, it, it's come down to that sort of reality because the evidence is catching up with the economics and people are making more rational decisions today than they have in the past. What would either one of you say to a city manager who wants to have that same conversation with their agency leader? You know, Angela, that's a very good question. And I'll, if I may, divert a little bit. So MedStar last year, when the national position paper from the 14 associations came out, we held a meeting in Detroit where we invited healthcare leaders and elected and appointed officials and EMS leaders as well to discuss the paper with several of the authors from the paper that were there. And we're doing it again this year on the anniversary of last year's event, March 16th. Uh, and I think Moz has that information for Moz members. But it's interesting to hear from the elected and appointed officials in our communities. And some of their responses, quite honestly, are, why is this the first time I'm hearing about this? The only thing I've heard up until now is response time, response time, response time, or everybody's going to die. And I think to Matt's question, when, when safety becomes an issue, when risk becomes an issue, when the economics of staffing or the availability of people of staffing becomes an issue, um, then suddenly everyone acts like this is the first time they've heard it. So I would think to say to a city manager, you know, we need to understand the expectation. We need to realize that the expectation is built on history and our past messaging. So of course it will be very response time heavy, but isn't really the response, isn't really the expectation the patient outcome and the care that the patient receives and the, the care, the patient satisfaction of the experience and the safety of the vehicle and, and all of those metrics in an EMS system, when they're brought to the table and given space at the table where response time takes its appropriate seat at the table, I think most city managers or township supervisors or elected officials, they understand that a, a balanced inquiry is what they should do into any pursuit. There's always a trade-off. If money was no object, we'd have an AED on every corner and an ambulance on every second corner. And even in that discussion, the only thing that would make the difference is the AED. So I think when a city manager or an elected or appointed official wants to talk about this, my response is always to talk about the components of an EMS system the patient side of the EMS system and not this issue of this, this one thing that we've all learned to use as our, as our banner. Um, because when you have those discussions and you, and you just use outside data, it's not Colby's opinion versus somebody else's opinion. It's just putting all the data out there and showing the advances that are being made around the country. Um, you can see the light bulb come on and 
when they have the discussion with their EMS agency leaders, I think sometimes that might get a little tenuous if the EMS agency, agency leader has not kept themselves up to speed on the national data and the discussion that's going on about uh, lights and siren responses and uh, the impact of response time on patient outcomes. And Angela, where, where we've gotten some really good success with this conversation, not only here in our communities here in North Texas, but in a number across the country, is the quality approach. You know, we want to improve the quality of EMS delivery and response time and light and siren responses. Those are process issues. Those aren't outcome-driven quality metrics. We need to look at, to what Colby said, compliance with a STEMI clinical bundle, compliance with a out-of-hospital cardiac arrest clinical bundle, chest compression fractions, mechanical chest compression device appropriate applications and, and use, those things that have way more of an impact on patient outcome clinically than you know whether or not we responded license siren or whether or not we got there in X number of minutes. You know, over the weekend or at the end of last week, there was a a, a news article that floated around about a very large community on the East Coast that people were bitching about the fact that it took the ambulance 19 minutes to get to a particular call and a very well-respected EMS agency in a very large city. But when you watch the body cam video that was released by the Metropolitan Police Department, the yeah, it took the ambulance 19 minutes to get there because it was triaged as a low acuity call. Um, there were first responders on scene for that case, starting at about minute seven, maybe minute eight, who did nothing, absolutely nothing as evidenced in the body cam footage. They stood around, they did a quick visual inspection of the patient's chest, but nothing else, no hands on the patient, no oxygen, no airway management, no vital signs for that entire time that they were on scene. Where is the human cry about that? And when we talk about the, the system, to Colby's point earlier, most systems have first responders for you know potentially high acuity cases or in, in many communities, they just go to every call. Where was the concern for the quote unquote response time to get the ALS provider there when no BLS care was being, not even first aid was being administered to this gentleman um, for the entire time the ambulance was responding. The first providers that put hands on that patient and started doing any type of assessment was when the ambulance arrived. Where's the, where's the public uproar about why did you even bother going if you're just going to stand there and bitch about how long it's going to take the ambulance to get there? Why don't why not upgrade them? Why not say, hey, we got a critical patient? How would you even know that you had a critical patient when you didn't even check a pulse for the entire time that you were there? So I think this is a much larger conversation about quality metrics in our profession and educating elected officials and appointed officials that if you really want to measure quality in your system, start with clinical bundles of care, patient experience, all the things that Colby mentioned, and response times are way, and, and light and siren responses are way down the quality list. So I think after listening to both of you kind of walk me through this very important topic, I've come to just a small handful of conclusions. The community does not expect a lights and sirens response for every single call they make. 
I've also heard you say that lights and sirens don't necessarily save the time that it is perceived to save. And lastly, I heard you say that your personnel, the EMTs and paramedics who will be arriving uh, for your medical emergency, don't like it either. They realize that there is an inherent risk. So the important next steps for us as agency leaders, as community leaders, elected, appointed officials, is to really become educated in those quality patient outcomes and metrics that we see from a clinical perspective, not necessarily from a response time perspective. Did I summarize your comments appropriately? Angela, if I can, you had everything right except for the community doesn't expect a red lights and siren response. I think in in all of our service areas, and I think I can speak very broadly, the communities that we serve trust us to tell them what's important. They, They believe us as EMS providers. So because we've told them that red lights and siren is the only way to get there fast and you have to get there fast or everyone's gonna die, they believe that. So it's it's on us to, as we start to push these changes through local systems, through county, state systems, we have to be willing to stand up and say, look, it's the same thing we believed when we got into this too, but we've learned that it's not the case anymore. And the new reality is this. And this set of set of data is what matters. And this is what we're going to set out to do as your EMS agency or your regulatory body or your, your local EMS department, whoever's doing the representation. I'm not sure that the public understands it right now because they've been told everything else. You know, every commercial that you see that's got an ambulance on has got a little stopwatch in the corner and time matters and the golden hour and seconds count and all these cute little phrases that are not supported by data, but that's what the public's heard and that's what they believe. And if we're gonna make change, we have to to utilize the trust that the public places in us and be willing to stand up and say, you know what, now we know better. Yeah, and that's why changes in clinical practice occur because evidence in reality, reveals new information. And and we're at that point now, and we've got enough body of evidence to show that what we've done in the past is more harm than good. And, but we would strongly recommend, and I think I can speak for Colby on this, is that you need to engage with your community, educate them, um, do some surveys. When, When we did our community survey, one of the questions that we asked was, you know, do you think that a person with a ankle sprain should have a different response than someone who's potentially suffering a cardiac arrest? And like 96% of the respondents said, oh yeah, they should get a different response. Okay, well, let's tell them what that difference is gonna be. And, and it's gonna, we're gonna say partly because that's what the community said they expected because they expect that the cardiac arrest should get a higher priority and we agree. So to get a good priority response to the cardiac arrest, we're gonna have a slower response to the ankle sprain because it's just common sense and, and it just makes a ton of sense. So I think you're right, Angela, you summarized it well, Colby's uh, additional comments spot on. But everyone listening to this podcast, you need to have this dialogue with your field staff, with your dispatchers, with your community, with your elected officials. Um, And in fact, most EMS consultants now are are starting to really jump on board and say, yeah, you know, we kind of screwed up for the last four decades and, you know, bid contracts and, and all sorts of stuff based on response times. And we're shifting that now to really focus on compliance with clinical bundles and patient experience and uh, clinical outcomes. Um, And oh, yeah, we're going to put 
response times and and response modes here in you know measure 15 instead of measure one and let's be honest it was measure one because it was easy and and colby and i have been in in private systems in the past where we bid contracts where we're gonna hey if you're gonna bid 10 minutes we're gonna bid 959 or 929 or whatever because we want to get that contract well shame on us so it's sort of on us now to, to change that public expectation to and and really the reality is we want to focus on the clinical outcome and the experiential outcome of the services that we provide, not a process metric for for how quickly we get there or how we get there. I think that was a great summation of our conversation today. Any last uh, moment thoughts? No, I'm. I, I think my last thought here is that I'm glad to see that there is traction being gained across the country. There's actually systems that are changing system design and utilization right now. So I'm thankful to see that. It, we'll continue the work uh, for the MOS members. There is the safety summit being held on March 16th. Angela has the information, but all of the work that's being done across the country to raise this, I think 10 years from now, we'll look back and, and realize that we just we just waited too long and hopefully there's not damage or injury or death because of it. And I would just close Angela by saying that, you know, EMS has evolved um, routinely and transformed routinely over time. This is just another one of those transformations that we just need to, much like Colby said in his opening, we took, you know, mass trousers off the ambulances. We took draw spreaders off the ambulance. We took EGTAs off the ambulance because evidence showed that it did more harm than good. We just need to do the same thing with license irons, um, again, for 90% of our responses. Colby Miller, CEO of MedStar Ambulance in Clinton Township. Matt Zavatsky, Chief Strategy Officer for MedStar Mobile Healthcare in Fort Worth, Texas, otherwise known as MedStar North and MedStar South. Thank you both for joining me today on the Moz Monthly Podcast. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Moz Monthly Podcast. For additional information on the upcoming Safety Summit being hosted by MedStar Ambulance in Clinton Township, visit medstarambulance.org slash safety summit. Further information and information on how to register will be included in today's show notes. Have a great day, everyone, and we look forward to seeing you next month. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Moz Monthly Podcast, the go-to source for information about Michigan's EMS system. Be sure to visit miambulance.org slash podcast to join the conversation and access other important information from the Michigan Association of Ambulance Services.